March Madness is here. So how about a quick story? It's 1992, and I don't want to brag, but I'm the assistant sports editor of The Review, the University of Delaware student newspaper. The Blue Hens have qualified for the school's first ever NCAA tournament appearance, and we're going to Dayton as a number 14 seed to face Cincinnati. Delaware's really good. They have a 27-3 record. They have Spencer Dunkley starting at center, and the guy is a 6'11 future NBA draft pick. Brian Pearl, one of America's top freshmen, is at point guard. And I believe that I'm about to cover an enormous upset. So the game begins. I'm courtside alongside Dan B. Levine, the review sports editor. And I'm biased because, you know, I'm a kid student and my knees are shaking beneath the table. And Delaware jumps out to a 6-2 lead. Holy shit, Dan. They can do this. They can really do this. Cincinnati is coached by a guy named Bob Huggins. His point guard is a kid out of Wisconsin named Van Exel, Nick Van Exel. The Bearcats pull out the full court press. Final score, Cincinnati 85, Delaware 47. The Hens are crushed. And 19-year-old Jeff Perlman is in March Madness heaven. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Mark Wicker, the recently retired Southern California news group sports columnist and one of the best to ever do it. This is episode number 251. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. Well, Mark, first of all, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I'm a subscriber to the Orange County Register, being out here in Southern California for about seven years. Recently, there's a uh, there's a column from you, and it says, the stories don't end when a storyteller leaves. And you wrote, uh, lately, our business wants to judge its own relevance by how many eyeballs and clicks it can provoke. It's really not hard to do that. Just come up with a top 10 list or put celebrity names in the headline. That's fine if you're operating a vending machine. The stories are where the value is. And then you went on to sort of list the stories you would like to read, the in-depth stories you'd like to read. And, and then you announce your retirement. And I don't know if I'm projecting that in a way you're sort of just fed up with this business and the way the model of, and the clicks, 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 and the look at me and the Twitter. And it just seems like you're kind of like, this sucks. I'm not really enjoying this. I'm going to retire. Is that too simplistic? Well, that was part of it. I think a lot of it is just having done it so long and, you know, I'm going to be 70 in uh, July and, and, you know, I think I would like to do a lot of other things besides doing this. And, you know, you, you invest so much energy and time into it and you, you kind of neglect other things that you'd like to do. And I think once you hit 80, if you're fortunate enough to hit 80, I think that's, you're not going to be able to do a lot of those things. So hopefully the next 10 years we'll be able to really, you know, kind of enjoy life a lot more. Um, Not that I didn't enjoy the job. I loved every minute of it in terms of writing the column. But yeah, the the business has changed tremendously, as you know, um, in terms of not having the resources we used to do, we used to have, not having the access to the athletes and thus to the stories that we once did, which I don't think is going to change for the better. And the emphasis on, you know, response rather than what a good story is. And it's a different business, you know, than, than making widgets or, you know, doing focus groups or whatever it's, you know, we're the professionals 
who were kind of entrusted to write the stories that matter. I could put Kobe Bryant in the first paragraph of every story and have a lot more clicks, you know, just because of, of that. And I think that if you, if you just base everything on reader response, you're going to write a lot of NFL and a lot of NBA and not much else, especially here and, and Dodgers here. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the world of sports, especially in L.A. So all that stuff comes together. And and I had been looking for an opportunity to do this for a while and never could find a good time. And then I realized that last Tuesday, March 1st, was the 35th anniversary of when I started it to register my first column. And I thought that would be a good good way to sort of finish the circle. Clicks matter, reads matter, Kobe in the headline, Dodgers in the headline, whatever. Did you feel like that at all impacted what you were writing about and how you approached columns? Well, prior to, there was a period there between 2009 and 2014 where the people that ran our department and the newspaper had this thing called Omniture, which measured response to your columns and or, or whatever you wrote and that was there was a lot of pressure there uh, we had one writer a, a really good writer who said you know basically I'm not going to play that game and uh, refused to kind of go along with it and he got fired and I was doing like photo galleries and a lot of stuff that didn't have anything to do with sports writing just to drum up clicks so there was a lot of pressure to do that and then we had new management come in in 2014 that basically said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to concentrate on the print product. And uh, they were great, but they didn't have, they were basically all hat, no cattle. And they did, they ran out of money. And uh, actually that was in 2012, they ran out of money in like 2014. And that's when I took a buyout and then later went to the LA daily news, which, and their, and their company, which eventually bought the register. But since I, since I was at the daily news, I have not felt any pressure to do any of that. You know, I've written whatever I've wanted. There's a lot of good stories in horse racing and boxing and other sports that don't get widespread clicks. And I was able to try to pursue those without any resistance from them. So I really, I was very appreciative of that. But I want to take you back. So I have in front of me an ad, I'll show it to you, from the Philadelphia Daily News, 1982. It says, Mark Wicker, now in the Daily News. How about this, sports fans? Mark Wicker, the superstar from the Bulletin, is now in the Daily News. What kind of talent is he? Talented enough to be voted America's top young columnist in a poll of the nation's leading sports editors. That same poll rated the Daily News sports staff the fourth best in the country. And now with him teaming up with heavy hitters like Sam Hochman and Bill Conlon and Rich Ashburn, no one can top our lineup. And I attended the University of Delaware. Bill Fleischman of the Daily News was my professor. Chuck Stone was one of my professors, also from the Daily News. And it was this really gritty hardcore, hard-nosed, if the Eagles suck, we're going to say they suck. If Dick Vermeule is doing a shitty job, we're going to say he's doing a shitty job. You're going to encounter the athletes every day and they're going to either love you or hate you or both. What was that period like? Like, what do people now, people coming up now, not know about what it was like coming up then? Well, I would take issue with the fourth best sports section. There were not three sports sections better than ours at the Daily News and probably have never been. You know, when you look at all the columnists, and it was probably the last of the writer's newspapers. You know, you, it was a tabloid. And basically, they would give you a page, you know, <laughs> and you just write and write and write. And if it filled up the page, fine. If it was too long, they'd jump into another page. And, you know, in terms of I want to go see Ohio State play Iowa or I want to go with the Phillies on this West Coast trip, they say fine. You know, and it was it was amazing that way. I think the Washington Post is a little bit that way now. They have that mentality, but. 
you know, when you look at all the writers, columnists, beat people, I mean, Gary Smith covered the Eagles at one point, if you remember, and, uh, you know, Bill Common, who I competed with before I went to the Daily News, was was one of the greatest baseball game story writers who ever lived. And, you know, Jay Greenberg covered the late Jay Greenberg, God bless his soul, was, a, was the Flyers guy at the Daily News, and, and Dick Weiss was a and still is a respected college, a very well-respected basketball writer. Phil Jasner, the late Phil Jasner, was a great 76ers writer. We, I mean, we had it all covered, and uh, it was a pleasure to read that read that sports section. It took a while. You yeah. Know, and, I mean, it took a, you know, it was a full breakfast reading that sports section, but uh, it was an honor to be there. Uh, sometimes the egos kind of ran into each other a little bit, and that's why Mike Rathett was a good sports editor, because he could referee all that. But, you know, when you had Hockman and Tom Cushman who preceded me and Ray Dinger and Tom Greer was there and uh, Bud Shaw was there, we really had a, a phenomenal section. And um, you know, there, there won't be another one like that in, that I can envision in the newspaper business anyway. And this is so foreign to a lot of people. You literally, you'd cover an event, come back to the newsroom, right? Yeah. yeah, it was a PM. It was, it was an afternoon paper. So, yeah, the deadline was like five o'clock in the morning. So we not only theoretically could cover an event, go to Pat's Steaks, have a couple of beers, and then go back to the office, right? If we wanted to. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was the, the freedom involved was was outstanding. I mean, we had a, you know, we didn't we didn't have a Sunday paper, which I really missed and I enjoyed having when I moved out here. And uh, the Saturday paper was kind of an afterthought, so we weren't really encouraged to cover a lot of Friday night stuff, and that's when a lot of stuff happens. But all in all, it was. Uh, I have great memories from all those years. They were formative years for me. I was, I came to Philly in 1978 when I was 26 and left in 1987. And, and those were really formative years covering those teams. I covered the Phillies for two years and covered the Sixers for one year and then did columns. And uh, it was, those were invaluable years. Wait, so I started my career at the Nashville, Tennessee. And when I was there, yeah. it was still a two newspaper town. You had the Nashville mm-hmm. banners, the PM, the Tennessee and the AM. Yeah. And even though it was fleeting, you really did want to kick their ass. Like if you had the same mm-hmm. beat, even if it was like I started as a high school wrestling writer, if you saw the banner guy there, you wanted to kick his ass. Yeah. You were in a town with two really great newspapers mm-hmm. and the Philadelphia Inquirer had a lot of great sports writers. Was the spirit of competitiveness as dogged and sort of red blooded as one would think? Yeah, it was. And and when I covered the Phillies, we had four newspapers. We had the Bulletin, the Daily News, the Inquirer. And then we had the Philadelphia Journal, which is a short-lived tabloid, which also produced, you know, Gene Collier and Fran Blindberry and, and uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of really good writers. I'm sure I'm going to leave somebody out. In fact, the hockey writer was Ned Coletti, oh. who uh, ended up being the general manager of the Dodgers. So, yeah, we had four newspapers. And then most of the teams uh, were covered also by the Wilmington paper and the Camden paper. And the Camden Courier Post had Ray Kelly Jr., whose dad had covered the Phillies, and he was really plugged into what was going on with the team. So you had to worry about him, too. And so, yeah, the competition was fierce. You know, when you picked up the paper, you had a little trepidation. You know, what do they have that we don't? And uh, that type of thing. And and it was great trend. And again, like you said, it's totally foreign concept for most people today because you don't have that. And if our paper, you know, our paper doesn't spend, I mean, we're owned by a hedge fund. They don't like to spend money or we were owned by a hedge fund. And, and uh, you know, they, they don't want to spend money on the product. And, you know, they, they want to fire people. They want to they want to get as much money out of the thing as they can. 
And so we're not competitive with the LA Times. I mean, our, our people are competitive, but we don't do, we don't have the resources to really compete with the day, with the LA Times as we once did. And as I, I think we should. So, uh, you know, that, that was something I really missed is having uh, that excitement and having all those different opinions and different people covering things. Was it okay to be friends with the rival back then? Yes, I was friends with most of them. Yeah, um, you know, sometimes not, but uh, yeah, we were all we were all kind of in it together. I mean, when I covered the Phillies, Jason Stark, Gene Collier, and I broke in. We covered the that was our first year covering a beat or covering the baseball beat, and you know we're the three we're the three kids, and you know we were kind of looked at as you know I don't know I don't know how they looked at us, but you know we it took a while to to get, you know, accepted by the clubhouse. And uh, in some cases we never did, but, you know, I think we all worked hard and we all really loved what we did and and tried to do a good job. So it kind of happened that way, but no, I've, some of my best friends to this day are people we competed with. And and we, we went out after the games. We, we knew each other's families. We went to each other's houses at times. It was really a, it was really a great atmosphere. Wait, so you covered the Phillies for a short span. I mean, it's a fascinating clubhouse and the names just jump. Pete Rose and Joe Morgan and Mike Schmidt. And the guy who always has fascinated me is Steve Carlton. Notorious from the media standpoint, you know, obviously an all-time great pitcher. Uh, what was Carlton like to cover as a member of the media? I don't know because I never met him. <laughs> none, none of us, I mean, it, just, it was just, you know, I'm not talking and that's it. And, uh, you know, we had no relationship with him. Um we knew he didn't like us very much, but he, I, I will say this, he was consistent and he never tried to, you know, influence our relationships with other players. In other words, he would never say, Hey, don't talk to that guy. Or, you know, I never heard him say anything like that. He just wanted to be left alone and we left him alone. And we, you know, that's how Tim McCarver, that's uh, one reason he got uh, to become such a media celebrity because we always went to him because he was the designated catcher. And of course he was great. And so he basically filled in our, our stories for us when he was catching him. And, um, you know, there was no shortage of people who wanted to talk about him because he was the most respected guy in that clubhouse uh, because of the way he, he went about his business. He was a fanatical worker and uh, obviously a great pitcher. And, uh, but, you know, I would, I would rather have someone like that, who I knew what the ground rules were than somebody who would talk if things were good and wouldn't talk if things were bad. Who's the hardest guy you ever covered? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's in, in terms of being unpredictable. Uh, I, I don't, I never looked really looked at it in those terms. Um, you know, I didn't get along with Mike Schmidt and, you know, for various reasons, but I wouldn't consider him a hard guy to cover. I don't really know. I never, I mean, Obviously, there were people like there's always people who were great to deal with, like Pete Rose was great to deal with. Tim Mussolini out here was great to deal with. Tory Hunter was great to deal with. Um, and then there are guys, then there are a lot of people in that middle that are OK to deal with. and You could deal with them. And, and but, I, you know, and then there's some people that are just not into it and don't want to do it and and all of that. And, and I guess they're they're kind of hard to deal with at times. I mean, I, I think most people who cover the Dodgers would tell you that Kershaw is hard to do right. because he's very defensive and, you know, he, he kind of makes it clear that he doesn't have a lot of respect for what we do. And, and yet he'll turn it on when the TV cameras are on and, and all of that. So uh, I think most people would say that about him. 
although I personally have never had a problem with him, but, um, you know, I, I mean, there was Milton Bradley, who was volatile and you never oh, knew yeah. what he would do, but, but there were times when he was great. You know, he was, he had, um, he had several different personalities going on there, but, uh, I don't, I don't know if there's anybody who was really, um, really that much of a problem in terms of being difficult. Wait, do you feel like you talked about Schmidt and, I was still, I was covering baseball in the late nineties where there were still athletes who would have problems with certain writers. You know, I'm not going to talk to that guy. I don't actually know if that exists today in the same way. I just don't think it does. So what is it like, like Mike Schmidt, you know, you, you said you, you know, you and Mike Schmidt, not a great relationship. Like what did that look like in the eighties? What did that mean? He was a guy that should have been a leader on the team and, and yet was, he was very kind of contentious and, you know, would just it was just difficult to pin down on a lot of things and and uh, again a guy who uh, you know I think he he was so concerned with not giving away anything he was actually feeling that he would that he was just you know his his basic his basic stance was you know that's a bad question you know so you know after a while it got a little bit tiresome and uh you know i probably overreacted to that but i just you know and i i think a lot of the guys who played with him had trouble with his with his personality at times too i mean they loved it when he played and i i will say this and i've said it a million times he's the best player i ever covered he's the best third baseman who ever lived and he's the best philly of all time you know without any god those three things are undoubtedly undoubtedly true but i i will tell you this this, this is an example. When the Hall of Fame came out, there were five guys who didn't vote for him. Man, I, I voted for him. Um, I joked to people. I said, I'm going to vote for him once. <laughs> if he doesn't make it, I'm not going to vote for him again. But, of course, I would have. Um, when the voting came down, his initial reaction was not, you know, this is great. I'm in the Hall of Fame. His reaction was, who didn't vote for me? He tried very hard to find out who didn't vote for him, you know. So, I mean, I don't know how, I mean, that's kind of all you have to say about that personality, that that's how he would react. He was just, I don't know, just bad vibes. And it, and and uh, we just never clicked. And I uh, I was tough on him. I, I think I was also, you know, I also praised him most of the time because he was a great player, but we didn't, we didn't have a relationship. Back in the day, could you, if you were covering a team, and a guy was being an asshole to you. Is it totally fine to be like, fuck you, fire back at the guys or no? Well, I don't know if you would say <laughs> that, but, uh, you know, you, you could you could go back at him every once in a while. But, I mean, my feeling was, you know, he was having a usually, – usually a guy would do that when he was having a bad day. I remember I – Mike McBride and I didn't get along. And then I was in Minnesota, and I was there to do a story on Julio Franco, who they had, who was one of their – prime prospects who they had traded to Cleveland in a controversial trade that involved Don Hayes. That shows you how long ago it was. Julio Franco was a kid, you know, back then. But he's now 90 um, years old. Yeah, he's 90 years, still playing, probably. <laughs> he's bad yeah, yeah. in the Dominican right now. Exactly. Yeah. And and uh looks good. So I walked in the Cleveland clubhouse and there's Julio Franco and right next to him is the name plate for Mike McBride. I went, oh crap, you know. I'm going to go talk, try to talk to this kid and Mike McBride's going to say, get the fuck, you know, don't talk to him. So I, you know, I, Mike McBride had been gone for like a few months 
And Meg McBride came out and saw me, and it was like we were best friends, you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean that happens sometimes. You know, they, they go someplace else, and everything that happened, they just kind of, you know, it just kind of disappears. So not only did I get something on Julio Fran Franco, I got something on Meg, you know. So sometimes that happens. And, you know, listen, I mean, these guys are under a lot of pressure. They have a scoreboard that tells everybody how they did every day. Uh, they've got us commenting on their uh, the way they play. Uh, they very rightfully will point out that we don't have really any idea how difficult it is what they do because we never did it. And there's, there's tension that's, that's assumed in that relationship. I mean, we're not supposed to be buddies. I mean, we're, we're just not, that's just the way it is. Um, and so, yeah, I can understand why they would erupt like that. I, I liked that when they did, when I, when I did know what they were thinking today, and I think you made an allusion to that, newspapers aren't as significant as they were and they're just kind of, and they make so much money that it, they're just kind of above it all. You know, I mean, they might not like what you write, but they're not going to give you the satisfaction of telling you that. So uh, the relationship has gotten less uh, confrontational, but probably also not as productive because they're just above you. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my son Emmett, who walked the red carpet last week at the premiere of Winning Time. So what was that like? The Emmett says talk to his publicist. What? The Emmett says he needs a nap in the Zen room from 317 to 415 and that he shall not be disturbed. The Emmett says to fetch him two Oakland Invaders jerseys and a Houston Gamblers t-shirt from RoyalRetros.com. The Emmett says it's the king of throwback sports merchandise. Oh, and the Emmett also wants a papaya smoothie, two cubes of crushed ice, not three. Bruh, why the arrogance? You were just an extra. The Emmett says don't be jealous of the Emmett. I had recently some a writer say to me, the writer was very happy because the person he wrote about loved the story he wrote. And I was like, that really shouldn't do it for you. Like, you don't want the person to love it or hate it. You want the person right. to say, you got that right. 99% of the time when either an athlete says they like the story or a, a reader will say that was a good story, what they're really saying is I agree with it. You know, they're not praising your syntax or your vocabulary or any of that. They're just saying, I, I agree with you. So 1987, you leave arguably the best newspaper market in America, in Philadelphia, this raw, gritty, awesome place to be, great city, great sports teams, great sports fans. And you go to the Orange County Register. Why? There were a lot of things. Um, at the time I was married, my wife lived in New York. I was living in New York part of the time and Philly part of the time. She was very sick and we thought that moving to Southern California would be good for her health, which it was uh, for a while. And we lived in San Clemente and we overlooked the ocean and it was glorious and every day you saw this. And I thought it was an exciting, you know, it's one of those things where I would go, I would come to LA twice a year. When you move to LA or when you, when you encounter LA for the first time, it's really hard to get a handle on it because it's so big and, and without definition. Or if you go to San Francisco, you fall in love with it the first time you see it. And as the years have gone on, as the trips to LA continued and I got more familiar with it, I liked it more and more. And at the 84 Olympics, I was out here for a month maybe. And Peter Eubroth had scared the hell out of everybody at LA and said, this is going to be awful. Leave. Don't, you know, get out of here. So everybody left. And for a month, the freeways were empty. You could get from wherever you wanted to in 10 minutes, and it was heaven, you know. And, and then the day after the Olympics, 
were over, they all came back and it was hell. But I really enjoyed it after that. And then they they came and they were an up and coming paper. They had a really good staff at the time. They were ambitious. They travel a lot. Chris Anderson was the editor and Jim Colonna was the sports editor. And Jim had a really good reputation from Dallas and, and other places. And it was just time, you know, it was just time to go. They made a really good offer. One thing about Philly, and and I do love I loved writing sports there, but Philly is a little bit it can it can wear on you, and the attitudes of the fans can wear on you. I mean, the fans there are uh, they have this reputation of being very intelligent and passionate. I would agree that they're passionate. I don't think they're terribly intelligent. I mean, it's all fire the coach, get rid of the quarterback. You either suck or you're great, you know, and and, and that's true for a lot of fans, but in Philadelphia, it's really exaggerated. And all of that stuff together, but it was mainly my wife's health and and the offer and the opportunity to do something different at that age. And uh, and I'm glad I did. Wait, so they always talk about, you know, some guys traded from whatever. He's traded from the Phillies to the Angels. And what's the culture shock going to be like? Or maybe he goes to play in Japan. He signs a one-year deal to play, you know, with the Tokyo Giants. What's the culture shock going to be like? You're used to riding in a hard market, a market where, you know, Michael Irvin is on the ground and knocked out and fans are cheering and you come out here to very happy, warm Southern California. Do you at all have to adjust your approach or change anything about the way you go about column writing? I didn't. um, And I I think that's, I think that's a little bit of a perception that's, that's probably not true. I mean, you know, the USC football fans are, crazy i mean you know, they're there if they get on you you're done and uh, in terms of a coach and and laker fans are incredibly demanding even though they they went to staples and, and filled staples those years when they weren't very good it's it's just i just think the geography has a lot to do with it that there is pressure i mean you know the other the other thing you run into is if you're an angel and you're playing the red sox you have to put up with a stadium that's going to be 60 percent red sox fans that night right or the Rams, you see what the Rams have run into with 49er fans taking over their stadium. So you have to run into that. On the other hand, I think athletes like playing here because they can disappear into the woodwork. You know, it's so big. If they want to be celebrities, they can be, but they can live their lives and have family lives and and be quiet without, and they can go out to dinner most places without anybody making a big deal out of them. I remember we went to a restaurant in Playa del Rey a few years ago and a quiet little Italian place and, and Phil Jackson and, and Jeannie walked in and it was like, okay, you know, it wasn't a big deal. And uh, I think, I think they like that part of it a lot along with the weather and, and everything else, but uh, I didn't change anything. I, I think generally speaking, you try to tell the truth about the teams to the readers. You try not to, to be, you know, either a Homer or, a, or an antagonist. You just try to tell the truth about the teams. And I think most people appreciate that. I've, I've had a lot of uh, columnists on this show through the years, and there's kind of a divide in philosophies, whether you are writing on behalf of the local fan base as sort of a voice for them, or you're writing as your, from your vantage point, and it's just you saying, here's what I think. What's kind of the way you have approached it? I totally, what I think. I mean, I'm not going to pander to the fans. I'm not going to tell them what they want to hear. Either way, you know, I'm not going to tell them that Clay Helton is the worst person on earth and should be drowned or, you know, I'm not going to tell them that, you know, the Rams are going to win. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm just, you know, because it's dishonest and lazy and, uh, you know, it's like I said, it's the old vending machine thing, you know, I mean, tell them, 
you know, and I, I know people, it, it sounds arrogant when newspaper people say this, but, you know, tell them what they should know, not what you think they want to know. And I think most of them want to know what's really going on. I don't, I don't think a lot of them, I think a lot of them can tell when they're being BSed. And, and I think most of them want to know what's going on with the team. You go to, you're writing off of the Angels game, you're writing off of the Dodgers game or whatever. You're going to the Super Bowl. We'll make this fictitious. You're going to the, the Super Bowl. It's Rams, Bengals. You show up at the stadium. Do you generally go in and say, I have no idea what I'm going to write about and figure it out as it goes along? Or do you have some ideas in your head beforehand? For a game like that, I would have, I would just show up and let the game dictate. If I was going to a baseball game in the middle of July, I would go in with an idea that I wanted to talk to somebody before the game. And that's where access comes in because you used to be able to walk in a clubhouse at 1.30 and find somebody and sit there and talk to them for 20 minutes before they got going with batting practice and all that stuff. And I did that countless numbers of times with the Angels and the Dodgers. So that, that would be the, that would be the approach there for a regular season game or for, or generally for an NBA game or a hockey game where they're usually available in the morning before the game when they're skating. So that would, that would be the difference, but the bigger the game, the more important the game, the more the game will dictate what I write. Do you get nervous before a big game at all? Or do you get any different feeling than week 14 of whatever? I, I don't generally speaking, if it's a big game and this, this is true in the past more than now, there would be a lot of guys I know, or a lot of people I know in the press box and, we'd be joking around and bannering and, and telling stories and stuff like that before the game. And, and uh, I would try to be, you know, and, and the game would start and it would be, even if it's a huge game, even if it's a game seven, generally speaking, it's, it's not a, I never got nervous about that. Now I remember the gold medal game in Vancouver, the hockey game between the U S and Canada. I was geeked for that. I was, I was very much pumped for that. And it turned out to be just a phenomenal. It might be the best sporting event I ever covered things like that. You know, big moments back in back when track and field was a big deal. Things Carl Lewis would do, you know, you, you're kind of on edge for those. But uh, most of the time, you know, I think younger, I got a lot more excited about Final Fours and stuff like that because I come from North Carolina where college basketball is, is so big. But as the years went on, I, I didn't feel nervous about those things. I, I enjoyed them, but I didn't feel nervous. Do you at all feel that the lack of access because of COVID hurt the quality of your work? Yes, uh, no question, because everybody's going to get the same stuff because everything's on a podium. So there was really no reason to go to the games anymore. You know, uh, during the COVID season, I covered a lot of things from here, from, from home, because, you know, you watch it on TV, then you Zoom the interviews, you got all the stats. You probably have seen the game better than you would in most press boxes these days, considering where they are. So, of course, it did. I remember a couple of weeks ago, Max Homa, the golfer who won the tournament in, at Riviera last year, they brought him in for a media day thing. And I was able to sit down and talk to him for 10, 15 minutes. And I was thinking, wow, it's been a long time since I've done that. You know, just me and a guy, me and an athlete talking and, and relating. And of course, you're going to, you know, person to person conversation is so much different than phone conversation. But, you know, you had to compensate. You had to you had to go if you wanted to do a story on somebody, you had to call their folks or their coach or people I used to play with. And it was all done over the phone and, and uh, it was difficult. I mean, we got by, you know, that way, but um, the one good thing about it is it, it sort of reconfirmed my suspicion that we all use too many quotes. If I had it to do over again, I'd probably use about 60% less quotes than I, that I used to. And 
And sometimes you just write it, you know, it's like somebody said, you know, why are you going down and talking to those guys? You can, you can say it better than they can. So in, in a way that, that was good, but I still don't like the podium stuff because it's all canned and, and you're, you know, the guys don't really believe that's the stuff they're saying anyway. So that was, that's very difficult. You just touched on one of my favorite subjects of all time that I rarely discuss here. I agree with you a thousand percent. I think a lot of times we use quotes, we overquote because it's nice to get those 200 words on paper and it's Damn right. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I think people do not understand when you say, well, you can say it better than the athlete can. From afar, it sounds like a real kind of douchey thing to say. You know, it's like, well, you're, what do you think? You're better than the athlete? And what, what do you mean by that? Because I agree with you. But how do you mean? Well, I'm a right. I mean, I'm, that's what I do. I mean, they play baseball better than I do. I probably write better than they do. I certainly hope so. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, we use quotes to fill in stories. We use quotes sometimes to, to make sure the reader knew that we were doing our job and Say, hey, he talked to three guys, you know, and never, they might not have said anything worth worth writing. I mean, I think great quotes are, are are good. I mean, it's not that you should never use them, but you should only use them when they really provide some illumination on what you're doing. It's not, you know, the same old, you know, it is what it is. And we love our culture and, you know, all this crap that you, you read it all the time because, you know, they're basically indoctrinated by most teams to say things like that instead of actually say what's going on or how they feel. Wait, I just want to say, I, I pulled up one of your old columns I really loved. Um, it was way back, June 1st, 1987. So you were a newbie out here in Orange County. The headline was, East is East and West is West and never the hoop will meet. And you wrote, they're not so different. Magic Johnson and Larry Bird claim mutual understanding, if not friendship. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Robert Parrish go about their business the same grim, undeniable way. If Danny Ainge were a Laker, he'd be loved here, hated there. If Michael Cooper were a Celtic, He'd be revered as a fearless competitor by Boston word strangler Johnny Most, but Chick Hearn might not be such a fan. They're just basketball players, wrapped in different labels, gold and green. They aren't making statements or representing anything but themselves. True, the stakes are titanic. Boston going for a repeat title, the Lakers trying to do what they did in 80 and 82 and 85 in a season when no one really thought they would. The intent will be dead serious and, in heated moments, maybe evil. It's big enough as it is, Boston and Los Angeles for the third time in the past four years for the NBA championship, but it won't be allowed to stop there or anywhere else short of a transcontinental passion play. It's fucking awesome. Um, Thank you. It must have been great when you're writing a column about something that's just really fun. Like, it seems like the highs of being a newspaper columnist have to be insanely high. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no question. Well, those seven-game series were Whoever came up with the concept of the seven-game series, I've always thought was was a, had a little bit of genius to them because it's really perfect in terms of what gets resolved. You know, you, you can't hide. Every part of your team is going to be exposed in the seven-game series at some point. And so they, they kind of go along, and if both teams are really good and it gets to seven, then that's really fantastic, you know, because game sevens are different. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I was in, I was very privileged to cover the Phillies when they won their first world championship. I was here when the Ducks won the Stanley Cup. Um, I was here for, you know, for, for all the Laker, the Laker wins and, and all of that. And, and uh, you know, a lot of a lot of other, and when the Angels won for the first and only time so far in 2002. And those are I mean, you, you do get wired. You know, you come home, you don't go to sleep right away because. First of all, you've gone through the deadline and all the endorphins or whatever that that, that that kind of releases. 
And two, you know, you've been part of something that people care about and is, that it's a big deal. I mean, when you win a championship, remember Ned Coletti talks about that, you know, he loves to, he loves it when he, he sees a team down there that's celebrating because he knows what they've been through over the course of seven or eight months every day getting to that point. And it's, it's big. It's, it's, it's something I will miss, I think, uh, as we go along. And so everybody in this business, if you do it long enough, at some point has a moment of like, ugh, that didn't work out well. And you had one that was kind of famous, 2009, I think. We wrote a lead and used J.C. Duggard, who had been kidnapped as a, I won't read the lead, but, and it, you kind of got dragged around quite a bit. I was wondering what that experience, if anything, sort of did for you or didn't do for you or taught you or didn't teach you. Well, first of all, it wasn't executed very well. And and I haven't really talked about this to anybody because the register didn't want me to for a long time. Well, and now you're retired. And I didn't want to, but I'm retired, so the hell with it. But uh, it was not well done. I had written a column of when Terry Anderson was released from jail in Iran that was similar. You know, like, here's what you missed. And, and it's a device where you can kind of take shots at people and have fun. This was a little different because of what she went through. Uh, what J.C. Dugard went through. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm very guilty of, of being too flippant and I deserved a lot of the crap that I got. Um, and I apologize for it in the paper. And every once in a while it comes up again, even though it's been 12 years and probably about 2,500 columns ago. Um, it's not the only thing I ever wrote, but some people think it is. Um, you know, the, the the thing about her situation that I still think that people miss out on is that she was gone for 18 years. Yeah. And most people around her had to think she was not coming back at all. So in a lot of ways, even though she had horrific things done to her, um, it was kind of a, you know, she's alive, you know, she's back and she's living from what I can tell a very, normal and I mean, not normal, but uh, conventional life since then. I mean, she's written two books, head of a foundation and all these things. And um, but I mean, beyond that, I mean, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have written it that way. I will say that there was a turning point. Colin was on a Tuesday. And for the next two days, you know, I was, you know, America's I, my, I was in the barrel. You know, it was my time in the barrel. And on a Thursday, I got a call from a number I didn't recognize. And the, the woman on the end said, I'm Eric, my name is uh, Erica Schulte and I represent the Dugard family. And I kind of had an involuntary, you know, like, what, what is this? What's going to happen now? And she said, no, no, this is good news. She said, first of all, she said, I didn't have a problem with the column. I thought it was fine. I think you're catching too much abuse for it. And I'm not only telling you this, I just got off the phone with your publisher a guy named Terry Horn. And I told him the same thing. I said, he's Marcus taking too much crap for this. We don't, I don't feel that it's justified. And I've never, I've only proposed to two women, both of whom became my wives. I almost proposed to Erica Schulte right then and there um, because it, it lifted a weight off of my shoulders. And I said, well, what do they think about it? What does, what's this, what does the family think? And she just laughed and said, you know, they're probably not even aware of it. They're going through some stuff right yeah, now. Right. From that moment on, I have really not given a damn what anybody has thought of Colin. That's because cool. if it was okay with her, I don't, nobody else counts. And, you know, it's the thing about Twitter and all this, and everybody thinks this is like some sort of a torture chamber when you, when people get on you 
And that's not the only time people have gotten on me on Twitter for various reasons. And um, if you want to stir up your traffic, you know, uh, back in the day, you, you know, rip Rush Limbaugh for ripping Donovan McNabb. That'll keep you busy for a couple of days. Or say anything bad about barstool sports. The, the hounds will come out and get you for a couple of days. But you know what? None of that stuff means anything. I mean, it's just all BS. It, it's, it's meaningless. You know, there's no physical injury. There's no mental injury. There's nothing. And, you know, I just kind of kept writing and just kind of said, I'm just going to keep writing. And one of these days it'll go away. I've never had anyone say, I'm not going to talk to you because you're the J.C. Dugar guy. I never, no one ever said that. Uh, maybe they said it behind my back, but I never ran into that. So it was educational. It was difficult. It was difficult for my family. Uh, but it was inconsequential, as it turned out, thanks to that phone call. But, you know, for a couple of days there, I didn't know what was going to happen. And it was it was memorable from that standpoint. It is interesting that um, I feel like the modern journalist lives in fear of getting ratioed on Twitter. Right. Like yeah. back in the day you might be understandably nervous about walking into a clubhouse and the Cubs third baseman punching you in the face, right? Like that was a, we've all had experiences. We were learning, yeah. Mm -hmm. but it is weird. Oh no, you two days on Twitter, people might make fun of you. Like, what is that? It's a little strange, you know? No, it has nothing to do with anything. It's just, it's people mostly with fake names with about three followers you know, I, I think a, a rule a rule of thumb would be if they have less than 50 followers, don't, you know, just block them. I mean, it, it, who cares? Right. And um, I told somebody I'd won the Outland Trophy Award last year for for blocking techniques. You know, I was I did so much blocking. I should have been like Anthony Munoz or something. But, yeah, it means nothing. And I mean, it means absolutely nothing to anybody unless you want it to, you know, because it's it's just stuff that goes on in the night. And, you know, I. I think every there. Somebody said one time, I don't know who it was. One of these psychologists said, "What you think of me is none of my business," and I've tried to live by that because you can't you you can't worry about what people think or what they say about you under any circumstances, or you're just not going to be very happy. Are you at all worried as you kind of head off into retirement? This may sound dumb, but like for all these years, you have this public voice and you write stuff and. Some are read more than others, but you're always writing something and you're in the public eye. Are you worried at all about feeling, for lack of, I guess, a better word, like insignificant or irrelevant or obsolete? Um, I, I, that, that's the interesting part about this. And I'm, I'm, it's not my insignificance or relevance. It's more like if Pete Rose ever gets in the Hall of Fame, my instinct will be, I got to write about this. You know, When Harold Varner III won that golf tournament in Saudi Arabia, yesterday with a 90 foot Eagle putt and put himself in position to be in the masters. It was, wow. When he comes to LA, I really want to write about that. You know, that's my first instinct, you know, and, and that's the first thing that pops in your mind. You know, we had a kid from Newberry park high school who became the third high school American or first third high school person in the world, I think to break four minute mile the other day. And, and they had this incredible bunch of runners up there that, you know, if track and field were still a big deal, you'd be hearing a lot more about them. And, you know, well, I need to go up there and do that. And, and you know, it, 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 at some point, you know, my wife said, you know, it's cut the cord, you know, and I was just kind of joking, but I, I thought, you know, gee, I should do that, you know, and, and I may run into that later, you know, I may run into that a lot. It might be frustrating. I might have to try to uh, explore other opportunities or vehicles, maybe that's uh, the newsletters or whatever, however that works. 
And um, so, yeah, that's something I'm going to be on the guard about. But the other thing that could happen is I might just, as the weeks go on, I might just kind of let go of the whole thing and not follow this closely and just get involved in other things. I, I hope that happens rather than the other. Last question I'm required to ask on this podcast. What is the best confrontation you ever had with a, in your career with a subject? Mm, this goes back to when I was in Philly. Rick Mahorn was playing for the, and this really in a confrontation because it was pretty one-sided, but um, he was playing for Washington and there was a controversy about him wiping out players with, with screens and, uh, and Pat Williams was the GM of the of the 76ers and he was complaining about it. And people were writing about it and all that stuff. And so I went in before a game and, and Rick Mahorn is sitting there and I introduced myself as being from the Philadelphia Daily News. And his reaction was, fuck Philadelphia and fuck the Daily News. And that was kind of the end of it. So, <laughs> so I said, well, you know, good point. Thank you. You know, and uh yeah, that's probably the, the most that's probably the one we used to tell the stories about the most. But, uh, you know, there have been a there have been a few others. But, you know, a lot of times, like I say, nowadays, they're not confrontational. They, they either don't want to get involved in it because, it, you know, they, they don't know how to handle those things or or they just look at it as us being inconsequential. But that was something that back in the old days, there was a lot more of it. There were a lot more things that you heard and situations you had to look after but but that's probably the one that comes to mind i oddly miss that you know yeah i mean i i did i did miss that i i'd rather i would rather have that than just this vanilla impersonal relationship with people especially now that you can't really sit down and talk with them at all well mark congrats on your retirement i hope there's a gardening or a banjo lesson or local theater or banana bread in your immediate future uh, well, it, it sort of opens up things, that's for sure. I mean, I've got a bookcase full of books I haven't read and a Netflix full of movies I haven't seen and and travel. And, and um, you know, I, I'm, I am writing plays. I'm, I, I was in a playwriting class a couple of years ago, and that's really that's really become a big deal. I've had a couple of things actually read on stage, and, and that's really exciting. It's a whole new thing. And uh, so I'm excited about that. And I'm hoping to pursue that a lot more. Well, I wish you luck, and thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Good luck to you. I want to thank today's guest, Mark Wicker, for joining me at Two Riders Singing Game. You can follow Mark on Twitter at mwicker03. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Game, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I rely on word of mouth. Also, check out my free weekly writing substack at perlman.substack.com. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.